We're at the point now where we are going to be talking about Noah and the flood. We've pretty much detailed the beginning of, of man and the fall of man, and now we're talking about, uh, we've talked about the, the, the uh, Satan's plan for polluting the line of, of the human line that Jesus Christ was going to come through. So now we're at the point where God destroys by flood and Noah, and we're going to talk about that today. But it's funny because right at the, right at the end of the story of Noah, they, they come out of the ark and they all dis- well, they disperse. They're supposed to disperse, and they do. And then right on the heels of that, we get into the story of this man named Nimrod. And if you were in my other classes, you know how big a deal I've made of this man, Nimrod. I'm going to make a big deal out of him here for the next couple of weeks. We have to. Because you will find out that the basis of this world system and how it operates is all based from him. It really is based from him. He, he has been and continues to be a persistent tool in Satan's hands. And there are, I don't want to say rumors, but there, is, there are educated guesses because there are no rumors. There are educated guesses. If you've studied the Nephilim and you've studied all of those things that Nimrod was part and parcel of that kind of genealogy. Now, I'm not saying he was one of them, but the, it, there is, there is there's history that says that he was part and parcel of this thing, and he was a very special guy. You're going to see some things, we're going to talk about him, that he was more than just, and that's why I'm saying this, because he was more than just the average good hunter. You may remember in, in Scripture, we're going to talk about it, where it says, and then there was Nimrod who built these cities, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. You may remember it's scripture says that. Well, it says a lot more. Well, it, it says more than that if you look at the translation properly. But there is a line of history that comes down from him that is so persistent. That we're going to talk about that because this guy was more than just your average human being. Um, we're also going to talk about, because he figures greatly into this, believe it or not, is what we call Christmas. And also what other, a, another major religion... <laughs> their form of worship and who they signify as deity. And some of you may already know the religion I'm talking about, and I'm going to mention it because it's truth. And again, I'll only offer you the truth. You process it as you see fit. And if you have any other information that either counters what I say or can add to it or or change it in any way, please feel free to offer it. But again, I want you to be sure that you have your facts to back it up. If it's just an opinion because you're offended at what I may say, that's okay, because I get offended at things too until I learn the truth. And that's what I want for you. But you know that in the Catholic religion, there is this Mary worship. It is not just Jesus Christ. It is his mother. And then we also have to pray through his mother if you're a Catholic. And you also have to pray through the saints. Where do you think all of that came from? Well, if you don't know, you're going to learn. You're going to learn where all of this came from. The Catholic Church, and by extension, the other religions that have that smack of Christianity have a lot of this in them. And it's only pure Christianity, which is not a religion, it's a relationship under the rules and the auspices of God and His, and his direction under Jesus Christ. That is true Christianity. Everything else is false. So just because it smells like Christianity doesn't mean it is. And that's one of the things we need to learn because Nimrod is the basis of all of false religions in the world. And that's, we're going to talk about that. So <clears throat> we've covered what seems very strange ground, but we must remember that there is a basis and a reason for the manipulation of the physical world and the physiology of the life within it, especially human life. And that basis is that Satan needs to counter everything God does because if he's going to win, Jesus Christ cannot come. Messiah cannot come. 
And not only can he not come, but if God says, okay, I've got this plan, I'm going to reveal a, a, a mode of my plan, and, and part of that is going to be human beings are going to be through which Messiah comes, guess what Satan's going to do? He's going to try to destroy that line. And as we move through history, guess what happens? We haven't gotten there yet, but we will. When that didn't work, and the flood came, and then Noah and his sons and their sons' wives, there's still the, the pure DNA of the human race came through, Messiah can still validly come through human beings. So now Satan had to wait until God brings us Abraham. And as soon as he brings us Abraham, we're going to see in the Genesis chapter 50 range, what happens to Abraham? He's waiting for the son of promise. He doesn't wait. Satan influences him and his wife. And you know how influential wives can be. Influence him to, you know what, thwart God's plan, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you make sure that we get the son of promise that we want. And you know the trouble ever since they had Ishmael through uh, uh, Hagar, the handmaiden of Sarah. Do you know that? If you don't know that, you're going to learn that. Not today, not this, not another, but we're going to get there because this is very important. So, but that didn't work. And so then we go on and on and on and through Moses and the Exodus and everything that, but Satan does not understand everything God is going to do beforehand. He only can be clued in as soon as God reveals it. And so, but God reveals it because, and he knows that there's going to be a counter plan. So there's this cat and mouse game, Satan being the mouse and God being the cat. But why do you think that is? Because you make no mistake about this. The major prize in all of this is the human being. He who wins the human being wins the future of eternity. Do you realize how important we are? Think about it. That Messiah has to come through us. That's why Jesus Christ had to be a man. That's why I told you there were four Gospels. There were four major conditions that had to be met for Jesus Christ to be Messiah. The book of Luke documents the fact that he had to be a human being. And there's a genealogy of Jesus Christ back to Adam in the book of Luke. Why? We are pawns in the game. We're being pulled. But you ever see those, uh, like in a cartoon or, or other instance where you have Satan on the shoulder and, and an angel on the other shoulder? That's where we all are. There's a huge, huge battle raging in heaven, raging in the atmosphere here. And by the way, a lot of it's centered over Iran, Iraq, and the Middle East. That's why the prince of Persia had to be fought before Daniel's prayer was answered. Remember? Jesus was, I believe it was Jesus, that he was detained because he, and Michael actually helped him, Michael the Archangel. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of things that I want you to understand as we go along, but the basis here is as we go over this overview of the Bible, it'll give you a framework to hang everything else you start learning from here on out until the day you're taken home. That's the basis of this. If you want more detail, study, look at my notes from the book of Daniel or look at my notes from the book of Revelation or my notes from the book of John, which I've taught in the past. But this is the point of this class. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you don't have to go there. God narrows down the, the line of, of Messiah. Remember we talked about Adam when Satan knew that? Boom, he starts attacking the line of Adam. We find out that, he start, that God says, well, now it's going to be Abraham. What happens there? In 2 Samuel, in that time frame, God reveals his next plan. The next level of of human beings that the line of Messiah has to come from is the line of King David, son of Jesse. And as soon as that was revealed, who was the major opponent? Say, Saul, right? 
Exactly, because some, Satan turns Saul against him. And Saul wouldn't even he didn't have been there, except Israel says, we want a king like everybody else. You, we, cannot, we can't bear you being our king, God. So we'll give you. Saul was handsome, but he was a flawed human being, and Satan was able to turn. And also, Goliath. Remember we talked about Goliath? He used a capital of his Philistines, the biggest dude Nephilim that he could find, and had him even try, and God used David with a little slingshot, this mustard seed principle, God made a very salient point in how he had David execute Goliath. It didn't take an army. It didn't even take a sword. It took a rock, a smooth stone, and a slingshot, and one shot. You see what I'm saying? So this is a cat and mouse game, and you and I are the prize. Those who are Jesus Christ already have chosen their side. Those who are not Jesus Christ, you better make your choice because one will be made for you and it's not going to be the right one. And believe me, if you don't do it now and you, if the tribulation is coming soon, and I believe it is, if there's anybody in here who doesn't understand this and is going to wait and going to wait, it's going to be unto the pain of death that you accept Jesus Christ if you are not raptured and you are still here when the tribulation happens. And then you're going to remember these words and you're going to say, wait a minute, this church is still filled with people the Sunday after the rapture. Mandola's gone. A lot of these other people that I know are gone. But there's a lot of people still praying here. Don't be fooled. There's two. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11. So you see, it's a big game of chess, isn't it? It's a big game of chess. And how do you win at chess? How do you, what, is the, what is the final goal of, of the game of chess? Take the king. Checkmate. Because you can always corner the king. But it's no good until you make it where that king has nothing left to do, nowhere to move. Remember, there are two kingdoms at stake here. There's the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, and there's the kingdom of Satan through Adam. Right? We talked about how through the line of, of man will come Antichrist. Through the line of God will come Jesus Christ, or has already come Jesus Christ. You see the comparisons here? We talked about that. That's what 666 is in Revelation. Six is the mark of human being, of the man. That's why it says it's the mark of a man. It's nothing mystical. It's just the trinity. It's three, which, which is a sign of completeness, but the incompleteness of the number six, which is man. Do you see how close the lineage in God's economy, human beings and Satan's line are very tied together in one goal, to get a checkmate, to get who's going to be king for eternity. It's going to be someone through the line of human beings that is God or through the line of human beings that is Satan. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what we're fighting with. So now we're, going to, we're, at, the, we're at the point now of talking about a man after our own dear own hearts. Everybody knows about him. Even if you're not Christian, you've heard about him. Noah. Well, we're not going to really get too deep into him. We're going to read about him a little bit, but we're going to talk about some very important aspects about Noah. And then we're going to go into one of his sons, which is Cush, and through him comes Nimrod. So Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11 through Genesis chapter 7 and verse 14. So we're going to do a little bit of reading here. So get your reading glasses on there, Chris. Oh, he's not that old yet. No, he's not that old. He's, oh, 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 he is that old yet. <laughs> I just want to say. They're in the bathroom. <laughs> I just got that. Well, I hope you're reading something valuable in the bathroom there. To make it worth your time, you know. Genesis chapter 6 verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. 
So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark out of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you ought to build it. And it's supposed to be, now listen, just roll these numbers around, depending on the measure of a cubit. So obviously the, the NIV used a certain measure, but I'm glad it's at least translated because no matter what measure you give a cubit, it's, it, it's close. But the ark is 450 feet long. Yeah, I've seen that, and in, uh, somewhere in the Scandinavia or something. You, did you send me the pictures? Someone sent me the pictures of it. It's like a, it's like a museum. Oh, it's yeah, a Jesse, Jesse my, yeah, my friend Jesse sent it. Yeah, um, four hundred fifty feet long, seventy-five feet wide, and forty-five feet high. And not only that, make a roof for it and finish it. Finish the ark to within eighteen inches of the top. So he's going to have the whole thing finished with decks and stalls and, and all of the, the, the accoutrements for a, a seafaring vessel that's going to be a home for a long time. Exactly, it's going to be 51 weeks, or 53 weeks, I'm sorry, that they were in this ark. You know, the water came and went, or, or, or started to subside, but it took 40 days. We're going to talk about that a little bit here, but they were in that ark for 53 weeks. 53 weeks. And there's some prophecy in that, by the way. We're going to talk about that. So he takes all the animals and all that stuff. And if you go down to verse uh, uh, 22, he says, And Noah, what? Did everything just as God commanded. It took him many years to build that ark. He also was probably getting a lot of laughs, too, because they were landlocked. These people really didn't know any water. They really hadn't rained. And all of a sudden, this guy built this, not a little dinghy, but a huge ship, something they had never seen before. What are you doing? Well, here's why I'm doing it. Now, can you imagine having all those years of witnessing and still God had to destroy everybody? So don't be discouraged if you witness and witness and witness and people just pray for them because sometimes you just, I mean, you can't do anything, I can't do anything anyway. But just pray for those who are, who are not getting it. Maybe because God's got, well, God has a plan for them, but you don't know what that plan is. It may be that they will not get it. Maybe one of those that are destined to go to destruction. Hopefully, whoever it is, whether it's a relative or a friend, is not, and we'll get it. But that's all you can do. And that's all Noah could do. He couldn't do anything else. So just, that's, that's just the point. So uh, Genesis 7, uh, 7, uh, 7, verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous or pure in this generation. And he tells him to take all the animals. And then uh, in verse 4, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. And again, in verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Didn't question any of it. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters came, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And they took all the animals with them. Verse 10, and after seven days the flood waters came on the earth. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, now I want you to get this, just listen. On the 17th day of the second month, on that day, you notice how God is very specific about the day? By the way, do you think this is based on what we call the Roman calendar? Not, we're going to talk about that. Again, this harkens back to the absolute importance for us as Christians to understand that if we want to know more about God's economy, we want to understand more of how God thinks, we want to understand His plan, we have to understand the Jewish 
thought, the Hebraic thought. We have to understand the calendar as, as he gave it to them, the 360-day prophetic year. We also have to understand the holy days, which are God's holy days and not just the Jewish holy days. Do I keep on repeating this too often? It is very, 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 very important. If we don't get that, we're only going to go so far and we will not go any further. How do I know that? Because I had to find that out. So, again, when I talk about Christmas and I talk about Easter and I do that often, I am not neg I'm not negating them as long as you know the genesis of them and you know what they are. And you also understand that they do nothing more than commemorate something good. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't just take it as these holy days that are prescribed for Christians because that is not true and that is a grievous error that a lot of people make. We make too much of these holidays and we don't make anything of the, of the real days that God gave us. Now again, I'm going to tell you the truth. If anybody's offended, I'm sorry that you're offended. But I'm not sorry for the truth. And that's all I'm telling you. You do with it as you will. I came to Christmas Eve service. I enjoyed it. But I do not believe for a moment that Jesus was born on Christmas Eve, even though all the songs say he was. Does anybody here really believe that he was born? You can raise your hand if you want. Maybe you don't want it because you thought that he didn't. You know he's not now. That's fine. But understand the truth. We're going to talk a little bit more about where Christmas came from. And then we'll leave it at that as we go along. But anyway, so on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep birth forth. So you see, by the way, this wasn't just rain. A lot of people think it just rained and rain. You're not going to fill up the earth with just rain from the clouds. The underground aquifers burst forth. There is there's so much happening here that the terrain of the earth is modified. And I've also heard it told, and I, I personally believe it, although I don't know this for sure, but one of the things that is said, and, and I do again personally believe it, only because I, I pursue understanding of science to a layman's level, I'm, not, I'm no scientist, and I don't profess to be anything special in that area, but with all of that tonnage of water now unbalanced, because it was all in the earth before that, so it's not that there's any water added, but now it's sloshing around with the pull of the gravity of the moon and all of these things, because now there's not underground anymore. It could have altered the orbit of the Earth or the position of the Earth, so now we start getting seasons, because there were no seasons in those days. There was a little bit of, of, of a wisp of a little cooling and a warming, but there was no dead of winter and heat of summer. There wasn't. There was no rain systems. The God watered the Earth, so there might have been certain heavily misted times with just enough that, you know, a greenhouse or a hothouse, it doesn't rain in a hothouse, and things grow just fine. What we may call global warming was actually more akin to what the world would have been in those days. There were no deserts like we have today. There were no places that are either flooded or desert or have ice caps. This is from what I've heard and what I've learned, and the more I study it, the more it makes a lot more sense to me. This flood was such a horrific destruction that it altered the earth and its orbit. It all, not its orbit, but its, its axis. It also altered it where instead of having a 360-day year, we now have a 365-day and a quarter year, and then everybody has to make up for the differences every year. God creates things in precision. 365 and one-quarter days is not precision. Something happened. When we investigated all that stuff, I told you about the stars. And if you read, especially you, you, you're reading now the, the book of Enoch, he even talks about God taught about the, the angel who was talking to him, whoever that was, was teaching him, and by extension, those around him, because I had said this, that God taught them the stars and the meanings. We talked about those things, but he made sure that he understood 
that those things never change their timing. They never change their course. But something happened. On that very day, on that very day, Noah and his sons and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wives and the wives of the three sons, entered the ark. On that very day, precisely the day, what happened? They entered this ark that they actually helped build under direction, under the direction of God. If you think about the prophetic nature of this, what does that remind you of? What's going to happen to us, hopefully very soon? The rapture. Because before God destroyed the earth, what did he do? He took the righteous out and floated them above the fray until it was time to come back. 53 weeks later, they come back and they take over the world again and they flourish. What do you think the rapture is about? We're pulled out. The world is judged to the brink of destruction. Remember Jesus said, if I don't come back, nothing, that, nothing will be saved alive. But when he does come back, he finds the place a mess. But he comes back with us, and he cleans it up and makes it perfect for a thousand years. When Noah came back, or when, when the floods receded, everything was destroyed. This planet was a mess. But who came out of the ark 53 weeks later? Just those eight people and all those animals. And they replenished the earth with purity of DNA again. We're going to replenish it with purity of God's spirit. Should we win the battle? And you know we will. Very apropos, right? Very prophetic. So, <clears throat> 53 weeks. I'm just going to read this to you. Um, Genesis 8, verses 3 and 4. The water receded steadily from the earth at the end of the 150 days. The water had gone down. Now listen to this. On the 17th day of the 7th month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the, the, the ark came to rest on the mount. Again, an exact date. And again, believe me, I am no expert in any of this. And I can't rattle off all of the months of the Jewish calendar. And I can't rattle off exactly when all of the holy days are going to fall in any year. And I really don't care to know to that detail. I don't have to. And that's not my point to know it. My point is to understand it so that I, when I do need to understand something God wrote about or something I learn, I can map it into what I know about God. You see, the whole point of this is, is not to go to seminary and become a hermit because I have a life to live and so do you. I have work to do. Most of my time during my life is taken up with work and family and things that God has called me to do and God's called you to do. So you don't have to be in seminary to learn this stuff. What you do have to do is learn the framework and once you understand it, it opens up everything else that God will pour into your head and it'll just come to you. I mentioned to a few of you, and I, I, I want this to use, I want you to see the value of this. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Um, when I, I'm, I'm getting to the point now where I'm looking at Scripture and, as a tapestry. As a tapestry. I'm not looking at it as a linear set of, or a set of linear events anymore. This happened and that happened and this happened. I look at it as a tapestry like this sort of like this, as one big object, and all of scripture, all of history, all of the things of God are in this big tapestry, and I can, I can focus in on anywhere I need, I don't know a lot about any little particular weave, but I know a lot of it, and I'm learning more and more, and filling more and more of it in, and that's what I want for you, because what, if you have, if you, if anybody, whatever job you're doing, whatever you do for work, or whatever you do at home, whatever you do with most of your time, if you do it long enough, it becomes second nature to you, doesn't it? 
And you, you build a fund of knowledge, not because you've learned everything about it, but you've learned how to think about it. You've learned the framework that makes whatever it is tick. You've learned how to work within that framework, and you've learned how to add things to your fund of knowledge to help you do whatever you do better. That's experience, that's wisdom. And I want for you that same thing with scripture. That's why we're doing this. So it's not just these riddles, it's not just these little incidences that weave it all together and say, oh, God is great, there's so much mystery here. No, there's not a lot of mystery. A lot has been revealed. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist. I'm just telling you because I'm not. And so I don't want you to think that this takes years and years of seminary school, because I, I, I didn't do any of that. Uh, so on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rests on Mount Ararat. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about the calendars, the Jewish calendars. We know that they're not on the Gregorian or Roman calendar. They map into it now because they have to work within the rest of the world. But they do have their calendars. You've, ever, you've heard of the month of Nisan, the month of Tishri, the month of Tammuz even, which is a name for a month that wasn't originally there. We're going to talk about Tammuz. But there are actually two Jewish calendars. I would call them Jewish, Hebrew calendars. The two calendars God gave the Hebrews. One is a civil calendar. It's a civil calendar. And that starts in the month of Tishri, which is in the fall of the year. There's a major holiday or holy day that's called Rosh Hashanah, which this year was September 29th. And that's the head of the year of the civil calendar. That's the beginning. That's the Jewish New Year that most people are familiar with, that's the head of the year for the, the civil calendar. But in Exodus 12, and you don't have to go there, but when we get there, you're going to see that the major theme of Exodus 12, why do they call the book Exodus? Anybody know? Why is the book? They leave. And why do they, not why do they leave, but what is the, the, the prompt for them to get out? The Passover. The Passover. The Passover is the, is the object of their escape. Does this sound prophetic, by the way? Well, yeah, it's, it's because of the Passover that they had to leave, that made way for them to leave. Yeah, that's the point of the Passover. When Jesus, is Jesus Christ our Passover? Why? Because he made the way of escape from this Egypt from severe bondage. You see, so you see how all this works. So you understand the, the position that Passover holds. Well, in Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13, there's a newer calendar that's given to them than the old civil calendar. It's what, they, it's what is called the religious calendar. And it starts in the month of Nisan, which actually is in the spring, which is where Passover fits. So you see the difference here? And you'll also notice that the... the, the Civil calendar begins at the end of, the, of our calendar year, if you will, like in the fall. But the other calendar, the religious calendar, begins at the beginning, in the springtime. By the way, in mythology, there's a lot of uh, things based around these calendars, aren't they? Fertilization rites and, and sun and moon worship, because a, it's based loosely on this kind of stuff. I'm going to move on now because we've got about 10 minutes. We're doing all right so Jesus was crucified on the Passover, which is the 14th day of Nisan, the 14th day of the first month of the religious year. Okay? At the time of the, so the religious calendar was instituted at the time Passover was made. And actually, um, God says in, the, in Exodus 12 that now this is the head of the year, Nisan. He changes it. 
See, these are the little nuances you learn. He changes it because now it's more important to base the calendar on the most prolific event or, or most important event of all history, and that's Passover pointing to Jesus Christ. So everything changes, including the calendar for them. Here's the point. Jesus was in the grave three days, which meant he was resurrected on the 17th day of the seventh month of that year. The 17th day of the seventh month of Nisan. The very same day that the ark came to rest on mountains of Ararat. The very same day. Do you get that significance of that? Think about it. That's why God is so precise when he tells us when that ark landed. We don't know exactly when the waters receded. We know it was 40 days, so we know, we know the time frame. We don't know exactly that like he sends the dove out and, you know, and it comes back because it has no place to land. He sends the raven out. But when he finally, but the dove, but when he sends the dove out that doesn't come back, then he knew the waters were receded because he found an olive branch, which is by the symbol of peace, by the way. You ever notice that? The dove with the olive branch. Why do you think that is? It's from this story. So now we have in Genesis, go to Genesis 9, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So now we have a new beginning, a new beginning. Just like when Jesus Christ comes back af just before, after the tribulation and just before the millennium, we have a new beginning, which will be the thousand-year millennium. And then after that, we have eternity. Well, guess what? We have a new beginning now. We now have the birth of a fresh start of life for the human beings and a fresh start of life for these animals. There's also something else that's going to start right now. It's called the establishment of human government. This is one of the dispensations. There are seven basic dispensations of world history. Now we have the beginning of human government. Before this, God was pretty much the head of everything. He dealt with man pretty much directly. Now, now we're going to have another layer in between God and man, and it's called human government. Genesis 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you, the fear and dread of you, human beings. Remember God said in Genesis to subdue the earth? He's saying it again. But listen to how he says it. The fear and dread of you. Remember he says to subdue the earth? Now he says the fear and dread, which means a position of power, a position of rulership. Should you choose to rule rightly, they will fear you and respect you. But should you choose to rule wrongly, they will dread you. By the way, which, which way have we chosen? The fear of dread, okay, will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all of the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Oh, and by the way, everything that lives and moves, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. So why do the Jews don't eat pork? Think about it. We're going to talk about that when we get there. Think about it. But he makes a point here. Everything, just as I had given you the green plants, I now give you everything as food. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Now we're getting into some rules all of a sudden. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting for every animal, and from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Now listen to this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. By man shall his blood be shed. Would you say that's the beginning of something called capital punishment? 
So all of those who don't believe in capital punishment, I can tell you that it is, is God-ordained because now we have human government and now we're going to see that governments are going to be in control. And as you know, it says, I think it's in the book of Romans, is it? Where it says that God doesn't put governments in front of you for nothing. You, should not, you, you don't fear the governor with the sword for nothing. If you do well, will he treat you well? But if you do badly, I, I forget what book this is. But you know what I'm talking 13, about, right? Is it Romans 13? Okay, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, so do you see that now this is the beginning of that, which lasted all the way through to the New Testament, because we just talked about an instance of it, where God says, obey government. By the way, when, when the Israelites were in captivity, they were told, Nimrod, sorry, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is your boss. Submit. Live quietly and just do, you, do the things you know you need to do for me, basically. Live quietly. And then uh, it says, multiply on earth and so increase. Okay. And um, verse 18 in chapter, chapter 9 of Genesis. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth, uh, and 19. These were the three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who were scattered all over the earth. You see the history here? So here's another little tiny genealogy. So let's review the seven basic dispensations, and we're going we're to take a few minutes to start talking about uh, uh, some other things here, getting into Nimrod. The age of innocence was the first, and that was from the creation of Adam to the fall. The next was the age of conscience, from the fall to the flood. Now we're in the age of human government, from the flood to Abraham. The age of promise, from Abraham to Moses. And the Mosaic Law, where Moses gives the, gives the Israelites the law when they're out in the wilderness. Moses to the fulfillment of the cross. Then the law is done away with? No, it's fulfilled. And then we have the age of grace, the church age. That's where we are now. And after the church age, the millennial kingdom, which is why do you think there has to be a thousand year reign? Why? Why can't we just go into eternity? Because there is a kingdom for the Jew. It's been promised to the line of David for the Jew. There will be a kingdom and this will be the fulfillment of the kingdom for the Jew. The disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he basically said, it's not for you to know because the kingdom is going to be fulfilled in that thousand year millennium. That's why. He didn't say it's not going to be fulfilled. He didn't say it's not for you, it's for this new thing called the Christians because they weren't, he hadn't died yet. So there was no Christianity. So, but they also knew from history and from Scripture that the kingdom was theirs. Anyway, Noah lives and he dies in Genesis 9 and verse 28. Now, we're running short of time, but I want to introduce to you this man named Nimrod, and I want you to think about him this week. So go to Genesis uh, chapter 10 and verse 1. Actually, chapter 10 and verse uh, 7. Chapter 10 and verse 7 in Genesis. I'm going to wrap up for the day. Boy, this is great. i got two weeks' worth of notes here. I'm going to have to prepare next week. I can sleep in a little bit. Okay, the sons of Cush. Remember I told you Cush is one of the sons of, of Noah. These genealogies are important. We don't have to know everybody here. But go to verse 8, and it says, Cush was the father, chapter 10 and verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. Ooh, sounds like a great guy. Why is he being singled out? There are other warriors. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He sounds like a great guy if you don't know the history. 
the first centers of his kingdom. Now this is a man with a kingdom all of a sudden. Now it's right, it's right after the flood. It's not that far. It's right within the close genealogy of Noah. Now there's a kingdom all of a sudden. Remember the age of human government starts and now all of a sudden there's a kingdom. First centers of his kingdom were Babylon. Ooh, we're going to talk a lot about Babylon. Erech, Akkad, Kalnea, and Shinar, which is, by the way, a section in, in northern eastern Iraq, where Babylon is in that area. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh. Anybody know where Nineveh? I mean, what Nineveh is about? That city doesn't exist anymore. Ka uh, uh, Rehoboth and Kala and Reason, which is between Nineveh and Kala, there it is a great city. Now we're going to stop there. I want you to think about this. All of these cities, some of them don't have, some of them have honorable mentions, some of them you don't really know, but you know a couple of them, like Babylon and Nineveh. What is the thing that they have in common? God's judgment. God's judgment. That's right. So remember we talked about the, in, earlier in Genesis that um, there was Cain and Abel. Cain slew Abel. And then one of the things he did after that, he built a city. Now this guy's building a bunch of cities, and now these cities are together called his kingdom. You notice how evil tries to coagulate? When God says, scatter, they coagulate into cities. I'll leave you with this little hint. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. You know why? Because he learned, because he was very strong, and he learned how to start using leopards. He tamed leopards to hunt. And when, he used, when you use a great hunting machine like a leopard, which God designed as a hunting machine, guess what they do real well? They capture prey. And that's how he became a man of fame. And he taught his others how to do that. So they all coagulated around him because now he could provide for them. And once you're provided for, guess who becomes your de facto king? We're going to pick up there next week. Have a great week.